Hello, Logic friends. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by Cinesis. Cinesis is my personal reseller. I've had a relationship with them for 15 years and could not do my job without them. They've sponsored all of the user groups in North America. They sponsor the One Frame of White broadcast and they've sponsored prizes for the Logic parties. Just all around true friends to the Flame community. If you have a need for anything in terms of your Flame system, getting it up and running, keeping up and running, expanding, networking, remote working, call Cinesis. Find out more about their remote workflow solutions at Cinesis.io. You know, this has to be my favorite interview I've ever done. Uh, it's with two of my favorite people, Alan Letary and Jesse Morrow from Instinctual in LA. And it's just, it's just one hell of a ride. So strap in and just enjoy it, my friends. Here it comes. It's the rallying cry of 2020 is, uh, I think you're muted. <laughs> well, what, well, now my headphones worked as soon as I took it off of unmute, of mute. Yeah, but I, I get that distortion. I'm still getting Now you're getting distortion. the distortion? Yeah. Jesse and I, I sit so close to each other that the, the echo cancellation uh -huh. fucks with each of us because his microphone hears me and thinks it's an echo, and so it mutes, it mutes each other. Anyway. Let me try turning it off. The noise cancels. It's a very Alan Letary statement, by the way. I'm sitting so close to Jesse that the echolocation is fucking with each other. <laughs> of our headphones is fucking with each other. Yeah. This, like, this in other words, Jesse and I have found the one use case that the engineers who designed these headsets did not possibly <laughs> take into account. Two <laughs> idiots sitting next to each other on a video conference. Exactly. Headphones. Yeah. This happened the other day too, but it was happening. It's like kind of either it's hap it's one or the other. That's right. My Apple Watch just reminded me that I'm still fat. So <laughs> we all have a I, we all have a relationship with our technology. <laughs> that's why I stand up so I I look skinnier. See? Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. See the the, the camera angle. Oh yeah, dude. I have my my uh, DSLR here on like one of those um, uh, Manfrotto magic arms. Yeah. And you know it's officially a podcast because I've now said Manfrotto magic arms. <laughs> Which is like trying to like um, balance like five pens that are stuck like stacked end to end. Like I got this thing. It took me forever to get this to like the perfect height and the perfect angle, you know, to, uh, in to like hide my, my third chin, you know, uh, that God forbid I have to move it or take it down or like I got this thing totally wired in. And then that's when I realized that like this like magic pin or whatever the fuck they call this in Manfrotto yeah. land was blocking like the ability of the, uh, the touchscreen on the back of the camera to come out, you know? And so <laughs> right. naturally the camera that I have only has like autofocus if it's recording. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in the middle of one of these like logic live episodes, all of a sudden like the red light starts to blink on the front of the camera that says that the card that isn't recording is filling up. It's because of this fucking thing here. I had to take the whole thing apart. And it took me three more days to get it to line up so that I'd look even marginally attractive to myself. <laughs> but enough about me. You need to, you need to put uh, for your Logic Live sessions. You need to put some like really smart looking books on a bookshelf behind you. <laughs> I think what I have is um, 
I'll do one of the, I could do, I'll do a virtual background, but it'll all be like the art and composite, like the art and science and visual effects or whatever that book is called, remember? Yeah. Yep. First and second edition, like the one that came yeah. with the DVD with the James and the Giant Peach frames. Oh yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, you should just have those on one bookshelf, just those two books. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. Nothing else. <laughs> That and like maybe the uh, the the mate uh, like you know teacup that I bought when I was in Buenos Aires because so that way I could come back home and show everybody how fucking cool I was. <laughs> totally with the straw, oh. right? Doesn't it come? Oh with yeah, the with the metal straw. Yeah, you know. And I did like I came home and like I had this. And I, I like I was like I went and drank it once in front of other people and I was just like after a, after a lifetime of incredibly <laughs> douchey things, like I just completely outdid myself. <laughs> Totally, like you roll up with your own cup and straw. <laughs> like, hey, guys. <laughs> What's up? And guess where I was? <laughs> <laughs> I was on a shoot. <laughs> you're like, can I get some of that? Mate? It's called mate, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're like roll into the, to the coffee joint. Can I get some mate? But please make it in this cup. <laughs> Just this one cup. <laughs> Thank you. To the, the guy's <laughs> name is Troy. You know, yeah. I got this. He's just recently Eric's. waxed his beard. You know. Yeah, that's got the curl. Oh, totally. I think I would like to see Alan with one of those beards. Actually, that would probably make my day. Like, like, like a like a snidely <laughs> like, whiplash like a, kind a, of curled muscle. <laughs> yeah, when you do that, like beard or something. Totally yeah, like yeah. Where it comes out and it wraps around like <laughs> out here. Over like your Swiss, the Swiss Alps beard. Yeah, totally. you'd be like Poirot, you know? It's the kind <laughs> right. of thing you can twirl and go like, hmm, you know, when something isn't going well, you know? He, th- that could be COVID look, Alan. COVID-19 <laughs> look. Little mustache. And my sweatpants. <laughs> yeah. You're a happy man. So l- tell me a little bit about your podcast. So you're doing the Logic Live, which are awesome. Thank you. Um, and now you're doing the podcast as well. Yeah, I wanted to like uh, for two reasons. One, um, I, I wanted to be able to kind of like deep dive. You know, I mean the the Logic Live stuff is great. Um, yeah, it's a little difficult to watch an hour long conversation. I shouldn't say that. It's easier to listen to an hour long conversation if it's something you're interested in than to watch an hour long presentation. Yeah. You know, or conversation. So, um, we we did. Uh, and one of the logic labs with, with Will Harris and just due to the nature of it, you know, there was really nothing to see. It was just a conversation. I was, people were asking for the, just the audio. Um, and so that just kind of gave me the idea. So maybe we could, uh, I thought it'd be fun to be able to, to deep dive into stuff. Uh, and then also maybe like do some, um, artist profiles. I mean, there are so many names, uh, you know, around logic that everybody knows. So that's what I thought we'd do today. That sounds good. Um, Alan's the really the only artist on our team, though. So, do you want me to drop out of this? And oh, hell no! <laughs> I, I didn't. Talk, I was trying to think. You, how, <laughs> how easily were you lobbing that over the plate for me? <laughs> I was looking at Alan's face while I was saying it. He was quiet as hell. <laughs> he's just sitting there, quiet. Like, look at his face right now. He's, he's, he's waiting for his moment. He's waiting. He's I know. Being very, very careful. And waiting. Did for I ever his tell moment. you the story about Alan getting his 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 uh, 
marijuana weed card in like uh, <laughs> under four hours. <laughs> this is a funny story. It'll go fast. We were in our old offices and Alan comes in. Oh, wait. Could you, He's Jesse, like, could you start that over again? When you looked to Alan, your oh, microphones canceled each other out. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry. So we were in our old office. I don't know if you ever saw it. It was kind of like on the Culver lot. Mm-hmm. And Alan comes in one day. It was like a spring day. The, you know, California, the lights streaming in the window by him because he needed the, the office with the window. <laughs> and I hear from the other office, I hear, I'm going to get my weed card today. <laughs> and he just started making random phone calls to doctors. And within like three hours, he was on a, a doctor interview, which then determined that he did actually suffer from back pain <laughs> and anxiety and was able to get his, he cleared weed and he needed it right away. And within like six hours, we had weed being delivered to us on the lot, Culver <laughs> Studios lot. So he was <laughs> – that's the artist profile of Alan the <laughs> The man who can get anything done in a, the little amount of time, the littlest amount of time. I've definitely um, appre- grown to appreciate how when Alan puts his mind to something, uh, it's going to happen. It is. That is true. That is definitely true. The the hurdle is getting him to put his mind to it. <laughs> so um, tell me a little bit about Instinctual. I think I did all the talking. I think Alan should say what he wants to say. Oh, joining well, us now is Alan Letary. Hello. Uh, <laughs> in- Instinctual is a, a trifecta a partnership between Doug, Jesse, and I. And each of us brings a unique experience and perspective um, to our little business here. So Doug kind of runs the trailer department, and he brought the trailer department. And then Jesse runs the VFX portion. He acts as a producer, coordinator, and artist on the VFX stuff. And then I help out in compositing with the VFX, and I do all the tech. And we mostly do lots of trailer work from uh, conform, color, deliverables, um, and any trailer-specific VFX. And then uh, the other part of our business is doing feature VFX that are mostly like fix-its and the lightweight comping, nothing too crazy, no CG, um, but, you know, things like that. Yeah. How did you guys meet? Have you ever heard of a, a, a product called Shrink and Tether? That's how I met Alan when I was at Tech New York. Well, first time I ever saw Alan is a funny story. I don't know if you were there, Andy, but it was like NAB probably 2004. And I was in that – you remember they would have like that big – it was in Caesar's Palace and they'd have the the, the, the like conference room set up for us and they'd have Stefan Labrie up on like – he was like a mixologist. He'd be like up on that big stage with all the other guys – side by side and so we were all outside lingering outside to go into the hall and alan comes by with like four strippers in in like like shrink shrink and other shirts (laughs) you want to do you want a shirt 
and I was I was like, yeah, I guess I'll get a shirt. And then that was the first time I ever met Alan. He gave me a shirt at NAB. And then um, later on we met. Like then I got Shrink and Tether at Tech New York, and then I had to call him all the time because of course it didn't work. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, Alan, Shrink and Tether were were. Uh, let me start that over. Alan, what were Shrink and Tether? So in the early days of Flame on Linux, there was no QuickTime in and out, and so Shrink and Tether were components that allowed you to one do direct encodes, QuickTime encoding directly from the stone. Um, on a Mac, but referencing the stone on Linux because there was no QuickTime exporting. And then Tether allowed you to push and pull QuickTimes directly into the stone uh, on, on Linux when there was no QuickTime importing. But, uh, yeah, they quickly became irrelevant as that capability got added to and expanded on uh, in Linux. Where did you find the four strippers? Oh, uh, Le- Craigslist. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. I didn't make that part up, Andy. No, no. it's totally true. I hired these strippers to walk around and give out cards and shirts and try and sell the software. It's genius. Genius. Yeah, I remember, like, I don't don't think I was at... Well, I don't know. It it was NAB 2006. Was that the one where they, um, like, they reintroduced, like, we're bringing back the icons? I have no idea. Like you know, they had, they they unfurled like giant banners of like you know the the flame fish and the you know whatever like the inferno scorpion or whatever and uh, that was the huge deal of that NAB conference or like whatever discrete you know user meeting and also um, I remember everyone from Autodesk or from the Montreal office was very excited because this was the same ballroom at Caesar's Palace where uh, Celine Dion got married. That's right. It was big. <laughs> it was large. There was a lot of people there. Yeah, and Alan was there with four strippers. Did you even actually go into the the conference that day, or did you just run around well, with I, those strippers? Like the main NAB conference, or the Flame User Group meeting? The Flame User Group. Yeah, we were inside handing out postcards with the strippers. Oh, I remember that too. Up and down yeah. the aisles. That's right. right. <laughs> Whatever it took. It's phenomenal. Oh my god. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, after that, when I got back to LA, I was working at Sony and, um, Alan came across the freelance thing list. And so I had to finally get to like meet him in person after dealing with him from New York for so long. And so we hired him on a job and the producer comes in and goes, why are you making me hire this guy? He's like, at least he wasn't quite twice as expensive as everybody else, but he was like significantly more expensive. And I'm like, I think that it's going to be worth it, man. I think we really should like give this guy a shot. And then uh, we hired him. And of course, he was like three times faster than everybody. So he totally outweighed his, you know, he had a higher rate, but he got three times done, more done. So that's how I kept justifying bringing him back. And then we did, we did uh, this is the end together. We did a lot of work on that for, um, you know, the total, total recall, total recall, mm-hmm. total recall. Oh, what else? Oh, and sex tape. That was the big one where we developed the, uh, our skin warping technique. Yeah. So we had yeah. to DH do a lot of Cameron Diaz de-aging on sex tape at Sony. And then I took, we would eat lunch at the commissary. And one day I looked at Alan and I go, all this, this is not going to last. 
There's yeah. no way that this ColorWorks thing is going to last. And there's going to be a day where I call you up and I'm going to say we're going to start our own thing and you got to be ready. And Alan was like, yeah, just call me anytime. As soon as you're ready, just call me. And then in 2015, that day came and I made the phone call to Alan and we, I had four jobs ready to go and I called Alan and I'm like, we got four jobs ready to go. And he said, great. And in Alan Letary style, in, in about 15 hours, we had a full two-flame setup running off of his Synology that he had been using for his camera system, his security yeah. camera system at his house. <laughs> and totally I was in joking. one bedroom, and he was in the other bedroom. We had, you know, the flames all up and running, and uh, there was like an Ethernet. I remember sitting in his bedroom, like sweating thinking to myself, what did I just do? Like, I'm sitting in this dude's bedroom. I barely know Alan. We've just, like, worked on a couple jobs together. I, you know, I had been come from ColorWorks where we had, like, hundreds of terabytes of, of really fast sand storage and, like, burn nodes and all this, like, infrastructure. And now I'm, like, on this, like, Z820 with a couple of SSDs wired to Alan's Synology thinking to myself how is this ever going to work and that's how that's how it started and that's how it was born yeah and it worked it was a surprising it was hard as hell but it ended up working so so the, the two of you started you started the company at uh in alan's house yeah right and when did you move to the culver lot so here's the thing that was funny about that. We started, we set the whole thing up at Alan's house. And then five days later, Sony called us and we're like, hey, we got some free office space <laughs> next to the lot. So we had to take it all down again and put it into, you know, we're like making trips back and forth with our cars. And we set it up. We reset it all up in two offices right off the Sony lot. And then we, so we were only really technically in Alan's house for about five days. But it was terrifying. It's five days of terrifying, right? Like Alan redid his whole security system because we were afraid of the like Sony uh, uh, security audit. So he had like he he set up. He took all his like webcams and kind of set up like you know kind of a secure you know solution for us. And uh, but it was literally just in his house, like in two bedrooms. And the funny thing about that is when we left those bedrooms, like he never went back into those bedrooms for like nine months after we started. That's how busy it was. Like there's old like Apple cores that we left there the day that we moved out of his apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like a desiccated Apple core set on my desk like a year later with an, an inch of dust on everything. Oh my God. It was really crazy. What we really realized is that when you get an opportunity like this, you really have to be like Johnny on the spot and you can't mm -hmm. make any mistakes, which is also why it was so terrifying. You know, the first job we did was concussion. And when Sony gave us the job, they're like, we need to have temp comps done for like, I don't know, it was like 50 shots by the end of the week. And we had nothing. <laughs> like I just had a drive with plates on it. No <laughs> machines. <laughs> <laughs> I like I had this drive. I had this G-Ray drive. This is how we started the company. <laughs>
on this G Ray drive. It's eight terabyte, right? And uh, it was super terrifying. Oh my god! We had no, we had no tracking solution or like shot tracking solution. We just had, you know, kind of what we had sort of worked out at Colorworks a little bit, um, but it was it was really terrifying. So, but it worked out. I mean, it was really hard, but um, we were able to deliver, and that's the main thing is always constantly delivering every job, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. So, I don't know where Alan just went. I gotta take a piss. Oh, okay. oh he's gotta take a piss. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hey, can you leave this your headphones in. on so we can hear that? <laughs> I'll take them off real quick. Oh, no, he won't. This is another part that that's awesome about working with Alan is you just, you get to be intimately involved in his bodily functions. <laughs> you know, like, you know, you know when he's pissing, you know when he's taking a poo. It's all for everybody to hear. It's just like... This just in, <laughs> Alan is taking a piss. <laughs> it's constant. It's a constant roller coaster ride of fun, though. I think that I shows say. like a level of comfort. He clearly trusts you. Yeah, you know? I think so. And <laughs> you know, <laughs> until he doesn't. Yeah. Always so you started days. out. You started out as a uh, as a flame artist at Colorworks, or how did you how did you first get on the box? I started, um, I went to University of Colorado. I graduated in 95. And um, the semester before I graduated, I had two choices of film production in Boulder, Colorado. One was called Frontier Media, and they did a lot of porn. So that was one choice. Or my other choice was Warren Miller Entertainment, and they made ski movies. So I went with the ski movie choice because I like to ski and snowboard. So I, I went down over Christmas vacation because I lived in Boulder. I'm from Boulder. So I went down there and I sat in the lobby every day over Christmas vacation until they finally, they hadn't had any interns because they had just moved there from California. And so finally I convinced them to give me an internship. And then from there I learned Media 100 and After Effects and worked on a bunch of ski movies. And then um, I got a job right next door in like 97 or so, 96, 97. Um, and that's when I got onto Flame. And I was on Smoke version one. I, I, since I was kind of an editor first and not a compositor, I started on Smoke version one. And I learned all the hotkeys and I remapped all the hotkeys and I made them like mine, like this is going to be awesome. I'm going to make this. And then in smoke version 1.1, they changed all the hotkeys <laughs> and like wiped out the ability to save it. Or And then ever since then, I never like, you know, I'd never dealt like to this day, I won't program another hotkey because <laughs> of what happened to me from smoke one to smoke 1.1. So <laughs> And then um, some scars never heal. They don't. Yeah. And then in 99, around 99, I took a class with discreet out in the Santa Monica office for smoke. And I had already been running it for like a year and a half. So they're like, Oh wow. You, I took it with Sabelle. She's like, Oh yeah, you kind of know what you're doing on this machine. Can I give your name out to, for freelance? I was like, okay. Cause I was making like $22,000 a year in Colorado. 
and then from there i just started getting calls to freelance in la and then i moved out here like in and the 90 or yeah around the 99 and just from there i just i worked at colorado doing um finishing and then fox and just a lot of freelance gigs all over town and but not in the same circles as what Alan was doing because I was kind of coming up through the smoke route rather than the flame route. Mm-hmm. So, what about, then, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Right. Now let's get Alan's story. Yeah, Alan, how did you, how did you, uh, what's your story? How did you find your way to flame? Jesse, mute your, mute your microphone. Don't boss me. <laughs> uh, well, I always wanted to do visual effects. Um, as a child, like you know, watching movies, I knew I always wanted to be behind the camera uh, and on, in the kind of like the special effects, visual effects end of it. And growing up, it was still models, like models, trick photography, things like that. And as I became a teenager, things started to become digital with Photoshop. And I think even the first version of After Effects was available at that time. <clears throat> so, you know, things started to become digital, started reading a lot of magazines at the time, Cinefix, of course. And I was very fortunate that where I was going to high school was in the town next to Princeton University. And I did not have a computer at my house um, as, as a teenager. So I would go to Princeton University to use their computers. And at the time, they had like a public computer lab that not necessarily was for the general public, but was unsecured. I mean, they were all Macs. So I would like go there, use Macs, play with it. And then turned out that there were other high school kids or kids my age in the same situation doing the same thing. So we kind of formed a little click there. And then we realized, well, there's an actual computer graphics laboratory um, that was secured, which we subverted the security and were able to get access to. And by basically just being there during all my free time, I got to know some of the actual students of the university and some of the professors. And eventually I actually kind of got like, got a job um, at Princeton University Computer Graphics Lab um, in my last year or two of high school. Um, So that gave me a really solid technical foundation, not only of like actually operating um, Linux or Unix at the time, they were SGIs, um, but just foundational background in like CG. Um, Well, not just CG, but you know, computer imagery. Um, so that like, you know, helped spawn my direct interest in, um, not even compositing. I didn't even know what that was, but just something with movies and visual effects. Like that's what I knew. Um, and I was very fortunate that my father had a friend, uh, who had a friend who had like a, oh, basically a, a two man company. Um, and when we moved, my father, brother, and I moved here to LA, I was able to get an internship with this company and they had a Flint. And it was a two-person company. One guy didn't know anything about computers. He was like the creative. And then there was another guy who knew computers, but he was focusing on 3D. So there's this Flint just sitting there doing nothing. And I had no idea what this product was at all. And they're like, well, if you want to play around on this, you're welcome to do it. And I literally just would you know, be the first one there and the last one to leave uh, for probably about one or two months. And then they're like, hey, like, you know enough, we're going to start paying you now. I'm like, that's great. And that's kind of how it started. And that was in the summer of 1995, August of 1995. And I'm here, still here now doing <laughs> the same thing. So yeah, that's how it started for me. So I was 19. Did you ever do, 
Did you ever do those tutorials with like the lady and the weird, like skin tight? It was like in the nineties. Did you do those on the Flint? I mean, maybe I I don't remember. I don't know. Or was that in the manual? Yeah, it was the, like the off-brand, uh, like Cirque du Soleil kind of, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, the one woman had like eyes. Oh, her eyes were kind of like a chameleon. They were on the side of her head. Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, that was my first experience with Flint too. It's amazing, and also the Molson ad, the Molson tutorial on uh, smoke came oh on digital. Yeah, the like the Joe Canadian one, right? Wasn't that? Yeah, it? I think it was. Yeah, Molson, yeah, yeah. Molson uh, beer commercial. So. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I remember, uh, I was interviewing at a job or interviewing for like a, a job at a post house. It was still at, at NYU and, um, that it was a, an, an assistant engineer position because I knew how to use a Mac and they had an avid rental business and that was my way in, right. They needed an assistant engineer and the chief engineer was taking me down the hallway because all post facilities, especially in the nineties had a long hallway and there were rooms on either side with little like placards, you know, that said what the room was, like edit one, edit two. Yeah. And then there was a, a placard that said flame. And I, I asked him what that was. And he showed me like the desk side Onyx, which of course yeah. looked like the Whopper computer from like <laughs> war games. So I was in. And the only thing that the engineer knew how to do on the flame was press play on a clip. And he told me that this was uncompressed video. And I went, yeah, well, that's, that's not possible. That's just, that just cannot be done. And he brought me into the, like the machine room. I'd never been in the machine room before. And they had like the, remember like the gigantic, like five and a quarter inch hard drives. Yeah. I mean, they were like, like the size of a loaf of bread, <laughs> you know, they were eight. He had, um, he had these like removable sleds with, I think they were eight or nine gigabyte <laughs> drives, you know, <laughs> And that's how he was getting stuff, I guess, in and out of the stone. And I just, I just went, I, I have to learn this. I've never seen anything yeah. like this in my life. And uh, same thing, took the job, Yeah. never looked back. When I, the first visual effect I ever did was for the snow, snowboard ski from Warren Miller film called Snow Riders. And we blew up, me and this other guy, Patrick, blew up a tram at, at Big Sky Montana, like digitally using After Effects. And like we had the skiers jump off a building on green screen and it took all summer to render that one shot. <laughs> oh <laughs> my would, God. We would, we would press, we did it all on After Effects and we'd press render on After Effects and we'd be like, man, I hope it renders a frame tonight because that would be awesome. <laughs> it was like the bar was so low. It's like, if we could just get one frame out of this today, it would be amazing. Yep. Yeah. At that, at that place where, where they had the flame, I, I, when I got the job, they also had a flint, um, oh, yeah. like on a, whatever it was, like an indigo or something, like an SGI indigo. And it, ha it had a, a, a drive. I wouldn't call it a stone. It was a drive that held 3,000 frames of SD footage. And then they had an um, ACOM disc recorder that held 32 seconds of video. And uh, that flint, you'd press render on it and the screen would go black while it processed. And when the frame finished rendering, it would appear for one frame, <laughs> you know? And I remember like staring, like sitting, like staring, like, like, like my cat does when it's like looking for like a bird or something, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then the frame would happen. And then I'd get up and walk away. 
and it would write those frames over Ethernet or SCSI or something to like the ACOM. You know, it was like, totally. like you know, the first images that like the like the Voyager spacecraft you know was sent back from Jupiter. <laughs> like it would write them one scan line at a time. Totally, it was a beautiful time. I learned a that's lot about a good thing about That's a good thing about Alan, though, is that he's been doing this for so long. When he approaches a comp, he does it, like, different than everybody, anybody I've ever seen. Like, his, his batch setups, if you look at them, it's usually just one action node. Mm -hmm. Like, it's super clean and, like, very – and also for our company, he's really good at, at proceduralizing, especially since we have to do, like, you know, 300 of the same shot. He's really good at setting up a really cohesive procedure to get through 300 shots, but in a very simple way. So like on passengers, you know, we had to do all these screen comps. So Alan would come in and set up when the flames were working because of that one version. But he would be able to, he just is really good at like setting up the, a procedural batch that we can just throw artists onto when we need to and coming up with really like succinct workflows for getting through a lot of shots because I mean, we can get through, you know, we've done shows with like 300 shots with, you know, four, three or four artists in, uh, you know, like passengers, I think we did in like two weeks, like, mm -hmm. You know, we're, it's pretty rapid, and that, a lot of that has to do with the way that Alan approaches it at the beginning. So, yeah, Alan, how would you a, describe that that uh, that outlook that you have on on tasks on the job? Minimalism. I mean, that that's pervasive in pretty much all of my life. But but minimalism, just trying to do it as simple as possible with the least amount of things in between. And what what I've kind of always approached creating batch setups is like. I want to be able to just hand this off to somebody and not have to have them make an investigation. You know, no spaghetti. You know, even though I'm Italian, no spaghetti. Hey. <laughs> Alan, Alan is so like, he won't, he, he hates spaghetti so end, much. So if you could just end all of your like pearls of wisdom with a Fonzie A, that would the perfect button. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't like complexity, and there's a lot of ways to do cool things without complexity, and sometimes need it, but for what we do, there's a lot of ways to do it without. And we've also developed some proprietary technology plugins and things like that that help streamline that, streamline that procedural aspect with other artists even more so. So that's been a big part of what we've been doing. Uh, we got some of that proprietary technology about a year ago. We had that made. Um, so that's helped too, to be able to have different artists that aren't on the inside help us out without giving away our secrets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, it, from what I've seen of, of you guys and of your company, it's been a story in, uh, in rapid expansion, you know, and not only that, but like dealing with that. It's like, great, we got all this work in and how do we get it done? And, and how do we, you know, yeah. how do we stay profitable in, in a world where, you know, it's only getting more complicated the client only is only demanding more and more versions or more and more deliverables of each uh, comp. Yeah. And then uh, with, of course, no margin for error. Yeah. And um, how do we stay ahead of that curve? Automation. It's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's definitely difficult, but uh, it helps because we're a very tight knit um, group of people. 
Mm -hmm. uh, we work in an open floor plan, so that helps to foster communication and collaboration um, and also productivity because you can't just sit in your dark room all alone and uh, watch Netflix for hours without getting called out on it. Um, but yeah, then the automation in regards to deliverables, we've invested very heavily over the past four or five years. We've done about three or four major rounds of repipelining, um, most recently from scratch and leveraging a lot of the stuff that comes with Shotgun uh, Zero Config now. As, as I've recently been told by them, it's, not, it's actually called Basic Config, not Zero Config. Mm -hmm. um, and I notified them that the whole Flame community understands it as Zero Config. Um, but we've, we're now leveraging that uh, in our latest iteration of the pipeline, which helps. Um, and yeah, we just work hard. I mean, kind of live here. Uh, it's really been, um, even during COVID, uh, people are like, are you back in the office? And I'm kind of like, well, we never never left really. So we have some people working remotely, but the core group of us is still here doing, uh, doing a variety of things. Have you, have you guys ever run into a problem with automation? Have you ever over automated, you know? We have, I, I, yeah, we did. Um, I'd say like round two and a half or three uh, of our pipeline, which happened in, we started that in February of 2017. I mean, it was very advanced and very capable, but it was fragile because it took care of so many things. It did so many things for us that it was fragile. Um, so the fourth round of our pipeline, the, the most current recent round, uh, we were like down to the, the basics. What's, what really makes sense in having the software automatically do for you, the, the repetitive things that you, know, you might do 20, 30, 40, 100 times a day. And then what are some of the stuff that might take you 30 minutes, but once a week? You know, that might be nice to get automated, but it's not a priority. It's easy enough to do manually. Um, so yeah, there's definitely that, um, that concern and that ability to automate yourself into more problems than it's worth because you spend more time fixing the robot than the robots being productive. So yes, that can happen and you have to be really careful about it. What, what's the worst day you ever had? In my life or in work, in a career? Uh, let's do it with, let's, let's, let's with the career. Um, working on the passengers project, not because the project itself was bad, but that version of software had so many horrific bugs that I basically slept at the office for many days in, consecutively in a row. And I was so, had so much anxiety from that. Like literally it would take you 45 minutes to, to, to load a batch setup and you couldn't burn it. You could only render it. And the render would be two hours. And if it crashed out, then you have to wait another 45 minutes for a flame to load. Um, I had so much anxiety that I was probably sleeping maybe two hours a day while being at the office, while sleeping at the office. And the only thing I could eat was chicken matzo ball soup. Like that was the only thing I could eat for like two weeks during the whole time that project was going on. Um, we just kept getting green blats every day with chicken matzo ball soup for me to eat. That was the worst day slash two weeks of my career, at least. Um, the most painful black period of my life. Uh, of uh, career life. Um, also, coincidentally, about two weeks before the weed incident. 
<laughs> yeah, no, 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 we didn't help. Coincidentally, no, we, Andy. Yeah. Coincidentally, I bring I blame Greenblatt. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was the hardest time. That was just a a, a broken broken version. Autodesk tried as best they could to get us some QFEs and bug fixes during the course of that. Um, and they were able to fix some things, but not the major ones before we were able to finish it. And thankfully we, we were able to finish it, which really was just a, amazing and a testament to really all the people we had on that project, just being great team players and really helping out and going like above and beyond. That was the hardest project I've ever worked on. And again, not necessarily because the work was hard. It was getting things to work was hard. Gotcha. It was really pretty simple work. It was like a bunch of hologram comps and stuff like that. But the client had no idea the terror and pain that was happening behind the curtain. As it should be. <laughs> That's true. What about you, Jesse? Would you would you agree with passengers or, or do you have another? Uh, no, every day, every day at Instinctual <laughs> is the best day of my life. <laughs> um, yeah, passengers was... Just I don't know if you've ever heard the stories, but it was really my hand. I would I wear I use this little tiny like thin pen because I don't like how the thick pens, the like plasticky part, gets all loose after a long day of work. So I was holding this pen, this thin pen, so hard that I think I've like permanently damaged my hand during passengers because I was trying to like drag batch nodes or like connect things. And you couldn't do it because the whole interface was just locked. Like it was insane. So yeah, that was our definitely, that was the closest that we came to failing. Yeah. Yeah. And we were very, we were just like teetering on the edge, just like one little finger from falling. And I was trying to put on a, a show with the um, VFX producers and, putting on a good face and and at one point alan just said i can't do this anymore i can't go to these screenings it's it's too stressful for me so i ended up having to go to the screenings and like we were working with this great visual effects supervisor named eric norby and he's like where's alan every time <laughs> i wasn't there but yeah it was pretty dark oh my god yeah and we were also under a lot of stress then too, because we were trying to get the trailer department up and running and we were, you know, it was just, it was a very stressful time for, for us, but it worked out. Mm -hmm. We delivered well, about, the job. What about the flip side? What about like, you know, you have a favorite success story, something you pulled out of the fire or something that. I mean, you know, being in this building, having what we have, that that's like the day that we took possession of this building we're renting it, but the day that we, you know, got the keys and I walked in here, I was by myself and I just walked in here and seeing that, like, you know, we, we created this. That was amazing for me. Like that, I kind of shed a tear and it was really awesome for me. You cried? So, I didn't know that. It really were you happened. crying because you were sick or were you crying? <laughs> Andy, when yeah. we opened this building, so we got the contract to do Sony Sony uh, trailers in we it was like May of 2017 maybe somewhere around there. We had oh it was maybe a little earlier, but we had about 30 days to 
find a building. And then after that 30 days, we had about, about 30 to 40 days before we had to be up and running. Mm -hmm. So once again, we realized that being able to move quickly and decisively was what we really needed. And, you know, we found a building with the theater and in like, I think we found it in 20 days and then we had the lease signed an epic amount of, you know, a short amount of time. And then, um, we were still finishing up a lot of work at the other office. So it was just Alan here by himself sitting in a chair out front, watching everybody else work. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were doing renovations to the building. So I was here with the construction crew supervising that, but I also had self-diagnosed pneumonia during that time. Oh, that's the best kind. Oh, it is. It's just a bundle of fun. So I was kind of overseeing the construction crew and, sitting outside on a chair in my misery because I could barely stand and walk. And I still get shit for that today from the guys, but that's okay. I hadn't noticed. <laughs> we have an ongoing photo gallery of Alan, like looking through my phone, it'll be like, oh, there's Alan sitting in a chair. Oh, there's Alan sitting on a beanbag. Oh, there's Alan yeah. asleep on the fucking beanbag. I have, I have a, a famous beanbag behind my desk. It's called the Kong Ball for reasons that could be imagined. And I sleep there a lot. I take lots of naps there, including when I had self-diagnosed COVID. Oh, you know, that's the best kind. Uh, again, right. I just, I, I just get all the, all the gifts. And uh, I was sleeping there on that Kong ball right, right behind me, <laughs> exhausted, huge headache. And Doug comes over and kicks me. He's like, get up, dude. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. He's like, get up. There's shots to do. I'm like, oh, I don't care. I can't. Well, he had non, he had self-diagnosed COVID symptoms the other day. He's like, I'm so tired. And you called and you woke me up and I, I was sweating in my sleep. I'm like, yeah, now you know how it feels. <laughs> he didn't have COVID though, but I believe I did. That's why I'm, I'm okay. Al Alan didn't have COVID. I probably did. I probably no, did. Very likely did. Where'd you find Kong Ball? I remember. I mean, I remember oh, seeing I it at the Culver <laughs> office. Yeah. Where does one great. come no, across a giant, you know, uh, black, what was like a shag covered beanbag chair? Yeah, it's like a furry, a black furry giant ball. I don't know who named it. Oh, but where did you where did you find it? That I don't know either. Oh, it's like a legend. Yeah, I'm a purveyor of. Uh, of bean bags, but the, that one, <laughs> I don't know. Never washed either. Oh. <laughs> no, the Kong ball has never been washed. That's like four year old Kong ball right there. <laughs> Kong crust, uh, four years. <laughs> you saw some of the photos too of Alan, like, you know, oh, like cool. Cool, for sure. For sure. <laughs> oh my it's God. It's not good. I wouldn't sit on that. Like, in fact, I, I did let my son sit on it yesterday. I'm kind of regretting that now. <laughs> just for kicks, you should you should clip a couple hairs off of that thing. Just send it to a lab, you know, like a DNA <laughs> lab, and see what the report. <laughs> it's like the motel spread, you know, the 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 bed cover on a motel. That's what that oh thing is. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Alan, you have a, a reputation for being outspoken, especially uh -huh. when it comes to. Uh, all things Autodesk. Yeah. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about that? Um, well, 
I mean, I just believe in truth and justice and honesty. And, you know, I, I that's what happens. Alan got us kicked off the beta. I was, we, tw tw I think twice. twice. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know well, about once, twice. I only knew about no, one. No, once was, once was just me. This was probably in 2009. I mentioned the car paint shader in the public because there was like other massive bugs that weren't being fixed. And I'm like, why isn't this fixed? And yet you put the fucking car paint in there prior to it being released, mm -hmm. you know, that, and so they kicked me off there. But that was, I think in 2009 personally. And then, um, I don't know what, like two years ago, they kicked me off for so, so-called threatening. They kicked us off. Yeah. I got kicked off too, just because of him. That's true. <laughs> one for all, all for one. <laughs> I called Jan. I'm like, Jan, why are you kicking me off? Alan's the one who said it. He's like, you guys are one and the same. You're both <laughs> off. Yeah. That's okay. We're, we're totally cool with him now, though. Completely redeemed. Yeah. And back into the fold. Yeah. But oh I don't know. God. Like, I, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not a politician. Like, I'm not political. And, and I just... I just... Tell it like it is. Yeah. Truth, justice, and uh, honesty. We've, we've learned, though, that we need to be better communicators about what we want. I'm really nice in my emails now. Way better yeah. in my emails. I've tried to just not really communicate anything unless it's super important now because I, I have a tendency to go from like zero to 100 anger level mm -hmm. very quickly. Those so are the I've best times to, to press send, that. by the way. What the fuck is this? How come... <laughs> You know, my, and my, also, my if, favorite. if you ever have in the email, and another thing. <laughs> <laughs> my thing that I always complain to Alan about is like. <laughs> What's your favorite feature now? Uh, motion vector tracking, I think, is still the biggest change for, for us. For our style of work, motion vector tracking is the greatest addition to Flame that we've had, I think. And I'm loving shotgun zero configs. Awesome. So those two things are really great, I think, for us. Mm -hmm. Oh, effects too, being able to do neat inside. Oh, of the yeah. Program. Neat. And, then, and then our custom, our custom plugin. That's great. Yeah, you're right. Having no effects. Those three things are just amazing. It does seem a lot more stable too. The last like couple releases have been a lot more pleasurable to work in. But honestly, like a lot of the new features, like with like the CG, you know, heavy CG features, we tend not to really get to use very often because, you know, like the machine learning, like we tried to play with it, but it's pretty much unusable with motion things in motion for us at least so far mm -hmm. so Dude, i just used the motion um, i'm sorry the machine learning stuff uh in a major way for the first time right we just we had a job come in uh that had 160 shots that needed just basic beauty work just basic cleanup nothing nothing fancy um aka very procedural right and uh it was uh, 160 shots over four 60 second spots and it was for talent. They were just, it was basically talking heads. We installed 2021 so I could get the new like face extraction stuff. 
And I just, I started out one day just building a rig, like building a procedural set of nodes that did what I needed to do for each of the four uh, talent. And it was literally plug and play. I just took that and we dropped it into every single, you know, every other shot of that person and it found all those features and boom, it was done. It was amazing. It was the only way we could have gotten through that amount of work. Were you using that for mat for creating mats or yeah, it was what, just to create yeah. like we, whether we were using like Croc Beauty or A2 Beauty or anything like that, you know, it, it was just a matter of creating mats for certain parts of the skin, you know, uh, and there were some specific like client comments, uh, you know, could you darken the, the highlights, you know, uh, the eyeshadow or whatever on, on one of the talent. And they have that, they have that uh, template option now for the uh, face extraction where you can kind of paint your own mat and it'll find it, yeah. you know, like based yeah. on UV yeah. mapping. Game changer. Hmm. Well, we got to play with that. We haven't played with that. We've been using a lot of motion vector tracking with mat for, for tracking mats, you know, like G, G masks, but mm -hmm. we haven't tried the, the, our initial experiments with it, with the extraction um, didn't work very well. So uh, we're excited. Oh, one other thing is just the planar tracker. I used to do a lot of planar tracking in Mocha, but the planar tracker in Flame is is really great mm -hmm. um, once you learn how to use it. And, and then you convert it to the proper color space. Yeah, we learned that. You know, we work with a lot of linear color space material and... That's often like on a low, low range. That's like, you know, it's almost black mm -hmm. to the naked eye. If you don't look, if you don't convert it to proper color space with the proper light. I think that's what a lot of, yeah. I think a lot of artists have that problem too. They don't realize that because Autodesk doesn't make it very clear that a lot of those things are very, a lot of those tools are very color space specific and yeah. in working properly. And the planar tracker is definitely one of those tools that if you don't mm -hmm. have it, you know, It'll just, you know, It'll fly lose its I learned that from work. Alan that some of these tools they they they're either they're trained or they're they're coded to see the way you see. Yeah. You know, yeah. Totally. I don't know if they're coded purposely that way, but that's like kind of the the net result of of their use usage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's another great thing about Alan. He he'll try things like I'll be like I just need to get this done. I just need whatever. Like I find out a solution but he'll actually figure out why, right? Like, why does this not work? And then it's, we could be more procedural in our approaches to fixing things, you know? And also help to get bugs fixed because that's the only way that they can fix bugs is if you can reproduce it for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. like, uh, we, we haven't been like too active on like beta in a bit, um, which is not the greatest thing, but you know, back when we were running beta all the time, like there was a, there was a probably two or three years where like our current version was always the beta version. I would spend easily 10 hours a week just documenting and reproducing um, and submitting bugs. Uh, I haven't mm -hmm. really had that opportunity or maybe the desire so much to do that recently, um, but it's really important. I think our, our, comfort level at that at the certain point started to drop because we were oh yeah we just got so we yeah. alan and i probably worked i don't know we were working six and seven day weeks and like you know 14 to 18 hours a day for probably yeah. three years yeah it was crazy it was crazy and then the whole passengers thing kind of put us off of using 
beta for production for uh, yeah. it really scared us oh i get that so yeah we almost yeah. failed yeah okay. um yeah but like anyone listening like it's really if you find a bug it's really important not to just assume that somebody else is going to report it or that it will eventually be fixed like take the time reproduce it more than anything screen record it because that is what gets things fixed it's you could write the most explicit like you know paragraph on how to on how something happens and what the bug is but the the easiest way for them to the easiest way for you to prevent them from denying the bug is showing it to them with a screen recording because when you when they can see it they can't deny it. Mm -hmm. They can't deny that that bug exists or that it's not a priority. Right. So. I've, I've had that. I've totally had it. We yeah. had that a couple of weeks ago and uh, thank right. God I had a screen. It was just a screen grab that I could send because they couldn't, they weren't getting the same result on their end. Right. Yeah. So screen record the stuff, narrate it if you can. And when, if you submit it to support, it's very important that you continue to follow up until you get the bug ID. It's not enough just to submit it to, to, to support because it can still get lost in the shuffle. Mm -hmm. Just keep asking them every two days, every three days, can I have a bug report? Can I have a bug ID? Can I have a bug ID? And eventually they'll give it to you and then there's nothing more you could do at that point. But that's super important. So I have one more question for you guys. And that was, yeah. uh, you know, uh, obviously the COVID situation has kind of fucked everything. But yeah. um, I'm an internal optimist we're going to get through this or if nothing else, we're going to figure out how to function through this. Mm -hmm. What are you guys looking forward to? What's the, the next big thing for instinctual? Okay. So for uh, obviously just getting back to work and generating revenue is like, you know, really huge for us because um, we're most, we're basically hundred percent in the film market. Um, and most, a good portion of our business is trailers, which is theatrical trailers. So uh, exclusively theatrical trailers, not television or online trailers. So until the theaters open back up and until they start showing trailers again, you know, that whole thing for us and, and the studios has dried up. So number one is we want to just be able to work and generate revenue again and do what we do. Um, longer down the lines, what this has taught us is that one, we can work remotely with some of the technology that we've deployed and or developed here. Also some of the remote technology that I've shown um, in my videos on YouTube that we could work remotely color accurately so a big thing that I think we're all looking forward to is not necessarily being tied to an office and still achieve 100% of our business. And my ideal is that we eventually just have not necessarily this kick-ass office, which is amazing and I'm so grateful to, to occupy here, that we don't even have this, but we just have a very secure kick-ass data center and everybody's working wherever they want. So that's my goals. That's what I'm looking forward to. I don't know if that will be a reality that we can make happen, uh, technically we can, but I don't know if the clients would be comfortable with that. You know, some clients want to have a place that they can go to if they're, if, if they're concerned things are fucking up, they want to know that there's a place they could go to and be what the fuck. Um, but we'll see. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's something that I want to try and develop over the next um, two years is can we groom the client to an understanding that we can do this and how we're going to do that is by slowly, this guy's going to work remotely today. This colorist is going to work remotely tomorrow. The next week, they're going to be working remotely. And over time, everybody can be working remotely. The client sees that everything's getting done without an issue. And then maybe in two years, when uh, 
when it's time, we just get a kick-ass data center somewhere. I mean, we were in two productions when this hit, for one for HBO, that Max, and then another one for Netflix. And so, you know, it's been, it was super hard to be, well, there's two things. One, the way that we set the studio up to begin with, where everything's centralized on the same stone and the same NAS was a huge advantage when we mm-hmm. hit that because mm-hmm. we could we already had kind of the workflow in place where we're all sharing the same flame project and each individual artist has their own workspace, but it's all tied to the original project, which is awesome because you can scale it. You can add in as many artists as you want. But also when you get COVID time, we were able to, well, Alan spun up those RGS boxes. So the artists were able to work from home, but essentially they're still working within the same pipeline, right? On the same. So for me being at the office, having two or three artists out of the office, it's seamless. When they publish shots to shotgun into the pipeline, it's all working within our kind of data center centralized hub. And so like further down the line, what would be awesome is that we start to make these centralized locations of data where colorists and creative people can maybe be embedded in the productions working remotely, but from the material that still has access to burns, you know, like 14 burn nodes, really fast storage, you know, really good performance without ever having to move anything around. And that's really what the advantage was, is that we had one, we, uh, for about two days, we were thinking we might send one artist home with just frames on a disc. And then he was going to render and come back with those rendered frames. And we, after about 24 hours, scrapped that because we realized there's no way we're ever going to be able to get through enough shots. You know, you probably had the same thing, the realization, Andy, like you can't move data around really efficiently yet, you know, from pools of storage, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe eventually the, our thing will become in the cloud, but you know, for now, what we have is a lot. We've added in a lot of store NAS storage. That's very fast. We've beefed up, you know, our SSD capacity on our shared stone, and you know, I think, and just and then the fact that we use shotguns, so you already have a means to communicate with artists who aren't in your locale. Right. Um, that has been working really, really well. So I think that from my standpoint, we're just excited about moving to the next level of our pipeline, which is more kind of siloed and segmented tools that aren't all built together around one thing. So because we use toolkit the first time, just a huge mistake. You know, we ran into all these problems with the pipeline, updating it and not being able to to you know, update certain parts of it. So the next iteration that we've pretty well finished up the major components of, everything's going to be siloed. It's like one program that's triggered from shotgun that runs deliverables, one program that sets up, you know, projects, everything's its own little program so that when all this stuff is updating, you know, not in order or you have like new updating and then flame updating before if 
that could blow up any one of those updates could blow up the whole system. So by siloing stuff now, we're going to get to a situation where we can update whatever we want and none of our tools are going to stop, you know, working. So. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. I think that's super exciting. And I think that our clients are excited about the possibilities of these remote workflows too. You know, it, imagine you, we could put in whole teams of artists to be kind of, you know, in, you know, next to the directors and the producers so that they could have feedback immediately with the artists. That, that could be a possibility now that we didn't really necessarily have before COVID. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that there could be some new, like more collaborative interactions with the production teams where you actually have artists that are, you know, that have a lot of power and don't have a lot of setup time because that's the problem with like in-house solutions. It's like you have a, you know, you either have to use those expensive cloud solutions and you have to say exactly what softwares you want. And where our, our solution is like the boxes are already set up the way that we want it. And we just put this that little thing behind Alan on that, you know, the little box, like just gets sent out. And next thing you know, you have access. There's no like, things that you don't have access to because everything's already been set up, right? You have, and from a creative standpoint and a speed standpoint, that's going to be a huge sales point, you know? Have you guys considered um, like trademarking it and calling it zero config? <laughs> I don't know. I hear that's we available. <laughs> Apparently after Alan like got yelled at by, the, by Autodesk, I'll call it a, uh, zero config. Uh, I think I think that we're gonna become out of this stronger because the other thing is that we never we always do things what we feel is the right way to do it, and if it doesn't work, then we're not afraid to tear it down and start again. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of places get stuck on one way because they've made maybe an initial investment in that, and it's really hard. I mean, it's super hard to change, and it's a lot of work, but ultimately if you're willing to reassess your procedures and the tools that you're using and constantly try to make those better, then you get to a place where you're not in a huge amount of debt. You're not in a huge amount of lessened capability because you can't keep up. Right. So totally. that's kind of what we've always tried to do. And, you know, Hopefully, I feel like in the flame world, as far as collaborative workflows and some of the things that we're doing are very cutting edge. And a lot of people, I don't think, have maybe grasped the, the, the power of that type of workflow. I, I'm, I'm sure you have started to work the way that, you know, you know, with shared stones and stuff, but I don't know how many people in the community are actually embracing that yet. But once you see it working and once you experience it as an artist, I, you know, Oh, it's a game. It's a complete sold. game changer. A hundred percent. Yeah. Totally. It's, it's really amazing that Autodesk not only basically doesn't promote that workflow, but that it just isn't the default. Like they don't even kind of tell you that that's possible. You could sort of figure it out, but like it should just be the default way that, that they prescribe the workflow because it changes everything mm -hmm. in terms of workflow it's probably the number one best thing that could have happened i mean it's and it's still flawed in many ways not flawed in terms of eating your data it's 
pretty very secure in that regards, but just it could be so much better and it's still so much better than what it was than the default islands. I, you know, I made yeah. the presentation data islands. It, it's still so much better than the data islands. That is the prescribed workflow from the factory. And it's just really shocking that they, one, don't even kind of offer it as an option. And two, don't just make it the way in which you do things. Why do you think that is? I think that they don't want to have to deal with change. Everyone, everybody's used to one way and they don't want to deal with, they don't want to have to deal with change and maybe the support costs. But I really think the support costs would be less. Maybe not. I don't know. But mostly I think it's changed and paradigms that people view flame and, and things like that. But hopefully one day, I think the storage subsystem um, and like that whole thing definitely warrants a revisit because it's been that way for a while. But shared libraries were, you know, part of that um, addition. I don't know when they even came into existence, but it's way better than before. So we could live with where it's at now, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways it could be better. The one thing that really stands out as a, a lacking feature is if you look at Resolve and they could do this collaborative editorial and color simultaneously. So you can have an editor working on a timeline and a separate colorist on a totally different machine coloring that same exact timeline and they're both dynamically updating. Like that's mind blowing in terms of workflow. So I'd like to see some eventual direction going that way. But shared libraries is still way, mm -hmm. centralized stone shared libraries is still like 1000 times better than everybody having their own individual local array and all this segmentation of data. So Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Well, hey, maybe we'll see Toxic 2.0, right? Maybe. Because <laughs> I remember seeing that. I remember seeing that collaborative shared editor working, colors working, or artists working. I think yeah. it was like 2005 or something like that. Right, yeah. So fingers crossed. They made right? you buy four seats of that, and that's why no one did it. You remember? They'd have like, you'd have to get like the main server, and then you'd have to buy four seats of it. Oh, I don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, we, yeah, we seriously looked into to purchasing it at the place that I was working at. Mm -hmm. And that was the big, that was a big impediment to, to, to going with that. But well, I, I got Stefan on, uh, on my logic live this weekend. So I'll ask him. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'll ask him about it. Well, another yeah. question for Stefan would be, when are they going to support 12 G 12 bit on black magic? I expect you to be on, uh, oh, that's true. Two o'clock on Sunday. That's true. Well, now that we can't go to the beach at all this weekend, um, I'll probably <laughs> will be around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. We'll definitely be attending this weekend, Andy, because we're back in lockdown. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. But, well, well, thanks, thanks guys. a lot for doing this. Yeah. It's oh, been of course. Really, thanks for all your um, awesome community platforms that you put out. Right. <laughs> well, thanks, man. <laughs> I love it. I I always loved like the um, I mean, it started with like the user groups and 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 like the this get-togethers in NAB. It was like we all know yeah. each other by name or from message boards or Facebook now or or whatever. And to just you know be able to kind of it's just to, to to I've made some of my best friends you know doing doing this kind of stuff. And uh, it's just it's a great little little family that we have. So. And I like how legit you look with that microphone. Oh, this this isn't even hooked up. I'm I'm talking through this. <laughs> yeah. 
This episode of The Logic Podcast is brought to you by Cinesis Oceana. Find out more about their remote workflow solutions at cinesis.io. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.